Well, do keep uh, Psalm 13 open before us, uh, or before you, as we look at it uh, together. I wonder what the darkest time is that you've ever faced. Not necessarily measured by the extremity of the circumstances, but by the anguish of your soul. Maybe it's a, a, a time that is even too dark to really want to remember. You shut the door on the memories of that time. Well, this is a psalm which connects with such times in our lives. It's a psalm that uh, may help us if such experiences come our way. It's a psalm which can also help us to help others, to be ready to stand by them, to empathize, to offer some wise counsel. Here's a a psalm for our own uh, comfort and encouragement, a psalm for our own instruction. It is, of course, a psalm of David, the greatest uh, king of ancient Israel, a man after God's own heart, the figure in the Old Testament who perhaps points us more clearly to Christ than any other person. We don't know when this psalm was written in David's life. We're ignorant of the circumstances. There's mention of an enemy, but we don't know who the enemy is. If it was early in David's life, it could have been King Saul who was trying to kill him. Uh, If it was later, it could have been his own son, Absalom, who had turned against him. Maybe it's some other enemy. It doesn't really matter who the enemy is, and maybe it helps us that we don't know, because it means that this psalm comes to us across three millennia disconnected from a particular place or time or circumstance. And so perhaps it connects more readily with believers down through the ages in all sorts of circumstances whether the enemy we face at a particular time is physical or spiritual, whether the enemy is external or internal, whether the enemy is a person or it's simply a set of circumstances. This psalm speaks to us. And it divides very obviously into three parts, three pairs of verses. First two verses, David's complaint. Then in verses three and four, David's cry. And in the final pair of verses, uh, David's choice. So that's what we're simply going to look through uh, this morning. We begin with David's complaint. And it's expressed in that one anguished question which is repeated four times. How long? How long? How long? It's uh, the complaint of endurance, strain to breaking point, isn't it? This is the, the, uh, the question of the child on the car journey, isn't it? The long car journey. How long? How long? How long? And yet, what David feels he cannot endure any longer is nothing so trivial as boredom on a car journey. No, it's the turmoil of his own thoughts. It's the unrelieved sorrow of his heart. And there are two things that made the situation so hard for David. The first was the time elapsed. David's question, which is his complaint, is how long? We we don't know how long David had been in this hole, whatever it was. It it doesn't matter, because really the issue is not how long it was. The issue is how long it felt. 
someone has written, however true it is that sorrow is but for a moment, it seems to last for an eternity. It's true also, isn't it, that we can bear almost anything when we can see an end to it. It is not seeing the end that makes sorrow so hard to bear. You know, how much easier it is to cope when we can say something like, well, at least by next Tuesday, this will all be over. But David couldn't say that. Will you forget me forever? He says in verse 1. And in the meantime, these endless days are filled with restless thoughts, verse 2. How long? Must I wrestle with my thoughts? Uh, literally, it's how long must I take counsel within myself? So his waiting is filled with scheming. He's trying desperately to work out how to get out of this. He's lying awake at night and, and his mind is racing and he's trying to find the way out. I wonder if you can identify with that, waking at four in the morning. Whatever the issue is, it's racing around your mind and you're thinking about all the possibilities. Again, as someone has written, left without God's help, what can a man do but think and think, plan and scheme to weariness all night, only to carry a heavy heart as he sees by daylight how futile his plans are? Well, that was where David was. When he looked at his schemes by the cold light of day, how foolish they looked. Or if the plan looked like it was worth a try, the plan failed. So every day he had sorrow in his heart, and his enemy continued to triumph. So that was the first thing that made this situation so hard for David. It was the sheer length of it, the time elapsed but the second thing, and I think here is the heart of it, he felt abandoned by God. He is a believer, but God seems absent. Look at his question in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Where, O Lord, is your intervention where is your rescue? Will you forget me forever? I've known your rescue. I've known your intervention. I've known it many times, but now it's just not there. Have you forgotten me? How long will you forget me? And where, O oh Lord, is your presence? How long will you hide your face from me? Here is a man who is almost crushed by his sense of the absence and inactivity of God. And this is the added pain of faith. That we need to acknowledge this morning that there are circumstances in which the believer actually feels more pain than the unbeliever. This is the pain that the unbeliever does not feel in his sorrows. Because having no expectation of God, he has no anguish when his prayers remain unanswered. But David is a believer. David expects deliverance. David is praying for deliverance, but he sees none. David expects a sense of God's presence, but he doesn't sense it. David's other psalms reveal how his greatest longing 
was for the presence of God. Just turn with me to Psalm 27. Just over a few pages, Psalm 27 and, and verse 4. See, here is David was the first man to sing this. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. See how he goes on in verse 8. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. For David, the presence of God is the most precious thing. That is what he seeks. But back in Psalm 13, what he feels is the pain of God's apparent absence. It feels like God has turned his back on David. I wonder if there's anyone here who knows something of that pain. Going through it, it can feel like loss of faith. I think of one particular believer going through such a time of trial and, and loss and, and saying, I have no sense of God's presence. I have no faith. I can't even pray. All I can say is, God, help me. And the answer to that is that that is faith. That is prayer. That your pain is not the pain of unbelief. No, your pain is the pain of faith. When sorrow seems to have no end and when God seems to be absent. Yes, it can feel like you've lost all hope. But if someone is saying, I've lost all hope, all I can do is cry out, how long, O Lord? Well, then the wise thing to say to them is, you've not actually lost hope. That's not true. And and do you know why? Because you're still talking to God. You're talking to God may be a complaint, but your hope is still pinned on God. Uh, as Martin Luther put it, hope itself despairs and despair yet hopes. Uh, and what does the believer's despair hope in? The believer's despair hopes in God. For, for where else is there to turn? So here is David complaining to God. And to complain to God is not a failure of faith, but it is faith speaking honestly to God in such circumstances. It is not an expression of hopelessness. This is hope clinging to God, refusing to let go. We do well to to learn from the honest faith of David's complaint. But it doesn't stop there. David goes on, and we come secondly in verses 3 and 4 to David's cry. See, verse 3, we come to his petition, his request, that there is not just questioning, there is asking. And the asking is actually very frank. It's very direct. It's very bold. That The first few words of verse 3 you could actually translate, you'd be right to translate it, look, answer, Lord. It's it's actually really rather like the the cry of a child seeking attention. I mean, maybe if you can remember school days, you can remember the the frustration of, of being the child in the class who never gets asked to answer the question. And you're bursting to say, look at me, notice me, ask me, see me. 
Or, or, or maybe you've, you've been the, the, the parent and, and your son or daughter has been desperately seeking your attention. Look at me. Notice me. Turn away from whatever you're wrapped up in and look at me. Well, here is David, the child of God, in the midst of his sorrow, doing exactly what the child of God should do. He's crying out for his father's attention. Lord, look, see me. And we see his plea in the second half of verse 3. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. I think he's asking for his bodily strength, his well-being to be restored. When a person dies, the the light in their eyes goes out completely. And even in life, the eyes are an amazing indicator of well-being and state of mind, aren't they? You notice when the sparkle goes out of somebody's eyes. You can tell from someone's eyes when they're not well. We say things like, "I, I could see it in his eyes. His mouth was smiling, but his eyes weren't. But David fears that the lamp of his eyes, which is burning so dimly, might go out altogether. That his sleep, restless as it has been, will become the sleep of death. Now, I don't think it's death itself that he fears. No, it's the triumph of his enemies. You see verse 4? What he fears is this that my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Which is cause and effect, I'm not sure. I I think David is very ill, and, and it may be that his illness is an opportunity that his enemy has seized upon, that his enemy is exploiting his weakness in his illness, Or it may be that the illness has been brought on by the oppression of the enemy. He doesn't speak here of his enemies trying to kill him, as he does in other psalms, but but the situation is killing him. Can't help but think of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the cross, and his soul overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, The Gospels tell us. Well, whatever the truth of the matter, what we can see is that David brings the possible triumph of his enemies to God as a matter of concern to God. This is a man who is confident that his predicament is God's concern. That's the unique perspective of Christian prayer, isn't it? So so in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says to them, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, the Lord Jesus is teaching us that our needs are God's concern. We don't have to make them God's concern by praying with many words. It is already the case. Our needs are God's concern. And in the cry of our sometimes desperate prayers, we are simply expressing our knowledge that our predicament is God's concern already. 
and our prayers, our, our, our deepest heartfelt cries rest on this foundation that God is for us and not against us. I wonder if that is the most important thing that the Christian knows. That God is for them and not against them. That, that's what David is expressing when he cries out, Look on me, answer me, O Lord, my God. I know that you are my God. You're not an unknown God. I know that you are the God who is for me and you're not against me. And through faith in Christ, we can know the same. That even when prayer seems to go unanswered, even when the delay seems so long, we we know that in the Lord Jesus Christ, God, who is his God and Father, has become our God and Father. And our God and Father is for us and he's not against us. And that is the bedrock of prayer. Even when sorrowful circumstances and and seemingly unanswered prayers seem to cloud out this reality, it remains the reality. That in the fog of the confusion that blurs our vision, we need to put our feet on this rock and we cry out to God knowing he is for us in Christ. And he's not against us. And perhaps we learn more profoundly in such times than at any other time that God is our only hope. I remember one manner, someone with an international ministry traveling around, speaking at Christian conferences, saying how he thanked God for his depression, which had at times been very severe for him, because it had taught him to value the Bible. Because in such times he knew that if this book is not true, then it was all hopeless. There was nothing else to cling to but the truth of God's word. And so he'd been taught its value beyond measure. David's complaint, David's cry, it takes us to David's choice. And David's choice was a choice to trust God. Do you see that in verse 5? But I trust in your unfailing love. The I is emphatic. But I, in your unfading love, I have trusted. And David's trust rests on God's revealed character, on God's unfading love. The scripture speaks numerous times of God's unfading love, sometimes translated his steadfast love, sometimes his loving kindness. It's the faithful love of God pledged by God to his children who are in covenant relationship with him. It's the love of God that David speaks of in Psalm 103 when he says, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. It's the love with which the Son of God loved us when he gave himself for us on the cross. And and on this love, David stakes his trust. He is like a a rock climber who's driving an anchor into a point in the rock. And David finds the anchor point for his soul in the steadfast love of his God. And this is David's choice to do this, 
This choice is not in the hands of his enemy. This choice is not subject to the situation. It is the choice that David makes. The enemy cannot stop it, and the situation, however bleak, cannot prevent it. David chooses to trust God. And it's a choice that David makes before God acts. So the complaint of verses 1 and 2 has not yet had a response, and the cry of verses 3 and 4 has not yet been answered. Deliverance has not yet come from God's hand. But David chooses to trust The verb trust in verse 5 is in the perfect tense. In Hebrew, that's the tense of completed action. I have trusted. It's the decision I have made. I have placed my trust in your unfailing love. And with that decision, the, the whole mood of the psalm changes. Now there is a calm assurance The turmoil is brought to an end, and the crying out is replaced by rejoicing, and complaining is replaced by singing to the Lord. David, in verse 6, may be saying, I am singing to the Lord as I remember his goodness to me. Or he may be saying, I know the day is coming when I will sing to the Lord, who will have been good to me. It may be both, but but either way, his confidence is restored as he chooses to trust God. And trust brings joy, and joy sings at the Lord's bountiful goodness, be it goodness remembered or goodness confidently expected in the future. And so I simply want to finish this morning by encouraging you to pray prayers of trust. We may be quite good at prayers of thankfulness at times and prayers of petition, saying thank you and and saying please. We we may not be so bad at at prayers of praise and and adoration. We, We may be good at prayers of confession, saying sorry. But I don't think anyone taught me, certainly early in my Christian life, to pray prayers of trust. More recently, I found it a great help to incorporate prayers of trust into my daily prayers. Prayers such as, I trust in your Son as my Savior. I trust that you want me to live in your grace and for your glory. I trust that you rule over all things for the ultimate good of those who love you and who have been called by you. I trust that Jesus Christ is the generous and powerful head of the church. I I trust that you will give me today all the gifts, time, energy, and health that I need to do the good works that you have prepared in advance for me to do. And many other such prayers of trust. That this is not trying to work up faith for things that God has not promised, but it is trusting in those things of which God has spoken. You know, as one hymn puts it, trouble may break with the dawn, and evil may come, and darkness will fall. Clouds will appear in the sky, and tears in our eyes, and pain in the soul. God can love me with an unfailing love, and I can still get ill. This side of glory, I may still suffer unemployment, or tragic bereavement, or days of dark depression. But I can trust God to provide. I can trust God to sustain. 
I can trust God to console. I can trust God to take me into his presence when the day of my death comes. And God can be trusted because of his covenant love pledged to us in the cross. So as that hymn goes on to say, God stands at his people's side, gives them a place to hide, rescues them and saves them, takes them to heaven, and in his own dear son, he brings them home. So I urge you, I encourage you to make David's choice daily. To trust God. To express that trust in prayer. And to do so before trouble breaks with the dawn. Learn to do it now. It's a much harder thing to learn to master in the midst of trouble. In the midst of the storm. If you haven't practiced it and learned it in the days of calm. Make David's choice. So Psalm 13 is just a short psalm, isn't it? It's just a few verses. But what a gift it is to us as it shows David, a man of God, complaining to God, yes, crying out to God in desperation, yes, but finding his way to a place of calm assurance, even rejoicing as he chooses to trust God. Well, with God's help, may we learn to do the same.